Hey, everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Together, we're exploring the connections between people, their communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. You know, my mother knew what it was that our churches and our communities are just now realizing that we can know how to name people's gifts in a way that gives power to a place, right? My very special guest today is Diamon Hargis, who has one of the best titles in the church and academy, The Roving Listener. We'll talk about what that means today and hear more about how Diamon and his neighbors bring individuals and institutions together to build mutual delight in unexpected places. As a faculty member of the Asset-Based Community Development Institute, Diamon reminds institutions, associations, and individuals willing to listen that communities have the power to heal themselves from within. Thank you so much for making the time to be here today, Diamon. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure. It, it's it's fun to have you here, and um, I'd love to dive into what I alluded to, your title, that um, this understanding of a roving listener. I'd actually never heard that before, before I heard about you from other people and then began to spend some time with you in your neighborhood. How did Was that something that you had heard of before you became the roving listener? Not really. Okay. If if you can, I can hear your (laughs) smile. (laughs) Okay. Because I'm so tickled. Uh, One, it was actually already who I already was Hmm. and born to be. Um, It actually came about because the pastor of our church, Reverend Mike Mather, is a good friend. We met in South Bend, and um, he's a storyteller, and you know he's one of the first people to as a pastor or any social service agency, when you first meet someone, you say, tell me your story. Mm. And it kind of perplexed me. And I told him the story about my grandparents who, after the title, I realized they were roving listeners too. <laughs> so essentially what a roving listener um, is, is uh, a person who looks for the gifts of every person in the life of a community. Mm. Um, find places for those gifts and celebrate those gifts uh, in ways that build community economy and mutual delight. Hmm. So you guys were, um, you grew up in South Bend, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And your, um, grandparents have an interesting story. Um, I'm wondering if you might tell us a little bit about uh, their learning tree. Yeah. Okay. So my, my, my family migrated from the South, my grandmother, um, all of my mom's side. And then on my dad's side came from the South about in the thirties, the early thirties. It was a rough time to come to the state of Indiana. Um, it was a time where we used to have a have to bond and there were settlements all out the state. And my, uh, grandparents, my great grandparents actually moved my grandparents to this settlement called, uh, now called the lake, hmm. you know, that's the west side of South Bend, Indiana. Okay. Um, when my mother was born in 1952, uh, my grandparents, my granddad really loved uh, 
like landscapes. We planted this tree. <clears throat> and he used to say, well, just because we live in housing projects don't mean we don't deserve something beautiful. Mm-hmm. And he would quote John 10, 10, you know, we should live life abundantly. And he would say that after he would leave the tree. When my mother became a teenager, um, the people that uh, after the teenagers would gather around the tree and watch all the elders and listen to stories. And they were the ones that actually named that tree, the learning tree. Hmm. And my grandfather had ended up before he died, told me that part of the story. What kinds of things were learned around that tree? Well, there were a few things. One, uh, community was learned. The, the importance of seeing each neighbor having value, right? And creating the space. That tree, that backyard was a place they knew that my grandfather really cared about it. And they called that place a sacred place. Mm. Also, thinking about what my grandparents held, I think that mimics what the gospel is, is that hospitality, right? That they look beyond servanthood and go into friendship. And so there are stories and stories. I went back and interviewed a few years ago, those people that are now 65 and older, talking about my grandfather and my mother and all the people there in this tree. They And it, it even came out, um, there was a tree that the teenagers that that didn't get to make it around the tree created their own tree. So it, it became some type of ritual that this tree represented learning. I mean, the other thing is creativity. My grandfather was an artist, so he made swings and things as time went on. So there was kind of art being built. Um, you know, people were baptized by the tree. I mean, just stuff that, you know, I think we as humans, when we become neighbors, we try to figure out how to do with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that uh, to me, that's a different picture of what a lot of people's experiences are of their neighborhood today. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, we, we get home, we walk in, we shut the door, we stay inside. Um, a lot of times, I'm surprised by the neighbors' names that I do know and the ones that I don't know. <laughs> the ones that you know little about might be your next door neighbors. But that's very different than the first time the time that I met you, you said, Come to my house, we'll meet there and we'll take a walk together. And um, you know everybody. And not just knowing them, you know everything about everybody. Is that like, is that true? I mean, it feels like that. Well, and, and when you, when you were talking about the title Roving Listener, that was named formally by me and Reverend Mike as a joke. But as it time went on, it's so fit. My mother used to say that um, I was a Pied Piper and I thought, you know, my mother knew what it was that the, our churches and our communities are just now realizing that we can know how to name people's gifts in a, in a way that um, gives power to a place, right? So mm-hmm. a roving listener, it, it it gave me some sense of value, right? That one, my congregation named what they already saw inside me. Mm-hmm. Two, that they figured out ways I can actively use it. And three, they created a structure of that for not just for me, and not just for people in the church, but also people in that community, in that parish, that sense of word, where we're all part of an ecology together. And 
we're all that that is like God's children, right? Yeah, and it's amazing when you when you see someone's gift discovered about themselves. What do you see happen in them? I see joy. So, and what I mean is that part of what you see is something that's already there and it's not like it's always been there Mm -hmm. but when you discover it not only do they light up you light up with delight (laughs) right so this idea for me this is just coming from me when i walk into a house and someone invite me to their space and you know and i usually fail when i ask them what their gifts are because no one usually asks them that but then as i get to sit to know it i I pay attention and i watch their gifts unfold because i can see where they body language change and joy in somebody's eyes i mean you know what that feel like Mm -hmm. everybody know what that feel like (laughs) some more than others but that is the that is what it that it feels like something not just look it feels like something yeah yeah what were you like as a child? Did you were you the kind of kid who was? You said that this goes way back for you. Yeah. Do you remember your childhood well? I do. It was so funny uh, because we have a culture of retelling stories. Mm-hmm. There was a culture of also reminding us of, of our own story. So my mom often talks about when I was born, hmm. but also you know I'm not like I am now. I'm pretty chatty. <laughs> I was a very quiet person. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh, always very tiny and, you know, small. Uh, but I was always curious. So, you know, I was just kind of, um, I was kind of a loner. And I li- and I realized what it was, looking in hindsight, that I liked to watch things. Yeah. And, yeah, I was a natural observer. But the other thing is I struggled in school. Um, so I never graduated from high school. I've always had trouble reading because of processing disorder and dyslexia which I'm not ashamed of now, Mm -hmm. you know, before that was shameful. But what I didn't realize is that I was reading in other ways that I had these gifts. Like I would come up with great ideas and know how to execute them. You know, I could answer almost any question, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I didn't know what that was about, but, uh, but I kept it to myself because I felt it was abnormal. (laughs) (laughs) I got to ask you, I mean, I don't know if you want to tell this um, in the podcast, but is there something related to that with your birth story or um, would your mother would tell you that so often? Well, so I asked her about a month ago, was it like when I, when I was actually birthed? And just one of the interesting things she said that I didn't want to come out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it was like, I think 20 something hours huh. that, and then, when, but when I came out, I shot out really fast, <laughs> and I just—they almost fell to the floor. And she said that that would go def, to to define uh, the way I make decisions. I'm mm-hmm. either hot or cold. <laughs> um, the other uh, the other thing is I I uh, what I what I learned is that my uncle told me a story. Like I didn't start talking to maybe three or four, mm-hmm. um, and. I like little bones. So he had a rib bone and he kept it from me. And it's my favorite uncle. It's so funny. It's my favorite uncle. Cause he often tells me this, my great uncle. And he took the bone away from me, gave it, and he just kept doing it. And I started crying and he said, what's wrong boy. And he says, and I yelled it out. I want to eat. Wow. And, and it reminds me of that 
place where I was born. So those two things that I know all the time. Those were your first words. Yep. Wow. Yep. That was my that was my first words. So anyway, the other thing is I I uh, I never really got in trouble. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I I was the oldest. I knew I was a little bossy sometimes, and um, so those things I remember about my childhood. I also remember my parents struggling and how deeply it it made me have hurt to watch them struggle and not be able to use their own gifts that I thought my parents were the greatest people in the world and they struggle with a lot of different things and so anyway what do you remember about your the struggles that your parents faced well so a couple of things are I I look in hindsight because when you're a child, you don't really understand. You think they just really mad at each other. Yeah. And after like, you know, hearing both my parents' stories, because the, again, the, the th- good thing about this is that I've been told these stories so much and listen, we've been kids listening to these stories and they were very hard. So one, the stories going back to my grandparents, how they made it to Indiana. And I realized that would that actually played out between my parents, my grandparents and each other, my parent, my mom and dad, that it was a lot of frustration. Not about each other, but it just about feeling trapped and not looked at. So like the place where my grandparents grew up, what I failed to mention is that though my grandparents and the families around there thought abundantly and live like that the rest of the city of south bend didn't treat them like that so memorial hospital would dump its biohazard in right across the the swamp which they were lived in and um people lived in that area Mm -hmm. then the city would dump its dump so i mean just the whole visual remind me that is not treating people like god's people and so those those things actually played out, you know, hearing how my grandfather used to my great grandfather and my grandfather couldn't get work. It was always the women being able to lead the work. So these little these little things you find out when my father got laid off, that's when fights would happen. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, those were, you know, and, you know, and drugs and alcohol affected my life. Mm-hmm. But what also affected my life is how I saw them work through and heal yeah without any of the outside support that not even actually from the church itself you know i feel blessed because i my congregation I, I have a congregation i was turned off from the church and when i met reverend mike and the notion of us becoming friends drew me more to that right someone that is treating me not like how my family was treated by the city of South Bend. And this is a congregation thinking about this work. I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm really, so I'm influenced by my parents yeah. in that story, but I'm also influenced by an ecology that holds a mirror up to show me that. Hmm. So going back to like the Roman listener, I feel like what you, what one of the things I wanted to be witness to is to where God is working in every single household in agency of neighbor and showing the value of having a meal or a party together is equally as powerful as worship. 
Yeah. Wait, something you just said was really powerful to me about this, not only being influenced by the lived experience going through life as a child, um, the people in your family, but also being influenced by an ecology that holds a mirror up to that experience, that sense of like looking again at something, or I don't know if you would describe it that way, but like um, paying attention to and being with a, a community that pays attention to what's going on, the good and the bad in people's lives, or maybe you would describe that differently. I just thought that was really significant. I, I agree. I think part of this, like, Acts 3 is one of my favorite uh, uh, gospel texts because it talks about the lame leaf of joy. But I, I'd never understood it. I was just like, that's that didn't make sense. Hmm. But when I went back and read it a few years ago and I looked closely at the first part of the places that we intently look, when you say pay attention, mm-hmm. that is it. That that And I realized that whole scripture was not a, just about having this lame man and figuring out the right ways to help him. I mean, you know, whether it's going to the food pantry or the beautiful gate or, you know, telling him what uh, Peter and John told him, right? Yeah. Really what that scripture was about was how do we stop being blind and how do we heal our own blindness? So at the end, they used the word recognize, to recognize, right? That wasn't about the man the lame man that was about the congregation hmm. that only saw him as lame. Yeah. And so partially that's what the church, when you hold that mirror up, the thing, what, you know, what I, what influenced me just in my life and my work is when my church does the lesson for the contemporary church, because the God didn't stop when the book went to press hmm. and it continues to play out in our lives as humans inside and outside the walls of the church. And I love when Reverend Mike say that. Does he say that within the context of like, that's yes. a moment in worship in the liturgy yes. the lesson for the contemporary church? Yes. Well, that seems like, yes. yeah, we should have that, but <laughs> like, that's a good idea. <laughs> and you know what follows that, right? What follows that? Somebody in our community, either from or not from the church. So we've had people like uh superintendent of schools, state superintendent. We had uh, IU Health Foundation. Huge organization here in Indy. And you're at Broadway United Methodist Church. So what happens? Yeah, you're there. You have the contemporary message for the church. It, and it's, it takes three minutes. And you usually have people telling stories about mm. just their work out in the world, where they see God out in the world, in their work, vocational life, in their family life. And it's usually based around the gospel text, the gospel reading. Um, yeah, that's in, in the traditional lectionary, right? And so, but but it has such more human touch to it. And it is, it gives us, it gives us like direction. It's like testimony time mm-hmm. of God's abundance, right? Yeah. And, and it offers the other, other thing, it offers a time for people in our congregation or in our city to connect on a personal level. Yeah. Right. So it's good. It's, I, I really, it's my favorite part. Though. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds really uplifting. I mean, a lot of times when we have moments in liturgy in different churches and people get the chance to speak, it, it can center around what we're struggling with. It can center around, or even like medical, um, 
a lot, who's in the hospital, who's sick, and we pray for them. But we seem to leave out that opportunity to search for and testify to the abundance all around us. Yes. And your community, um, the community in which Broadway United Methodist Church is located, what's striking to me and probably striking to a lot of folks who come and take that walk with you is that these are um, communities of neighbors who have low income, low household incomes. Um, a lot of times the, the official statistics kept by social service agencies, government agencies would say, well, this is the kind of community and neighborhood where um, where there isn't rather than where there is. And these are the places where um, we need to help people. And what you're saying is the po- our power is within us. Our assets are here already. Um, they're coming from within our neighbors, our communities and relationships we form. Mm. In our little tagline, you know, uh, the role of a rover listener is to build community, economy and mutual delight. So we just really talked about the fabric of community, right? Mm-hmm. The economy is important and, and I don't necessarily want to start with money, mm-hmm. but I will start with capital, though. And I think the power that community have and the power of the church I was just talking to the Bishop of United Methodist Church yesterday. We had a meeting and and he asked me, what is the role of the church in this conference? And I said, to lift up all the goodness that's invisible. Ooh. And you can do that in so many ways by changing the behaviors of the big church and start to become friends, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so like, I think economy, right, in that, the big part of the capital that we can utilize is trust. Mm. How do we cultivate trust? I mean, one of the things I love it. I mean, you, when you came over, we got a low income neighborhood. I've been living there for like 12 years and, you know, 12 years ago, you know, just regular popping up. People were like, what is this white woman doing in our neighborhood? (laughs) 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 And what, what I learned about assets and trust, like the, Trust is a really big asset. And so now no one's asking that question. Yeah. Someone said, so who was that lady? Hmm. Would you learn about her? Can I meet her? Hmm. You get what I mean? Yeah. So it's such a different thing that over years, it takes some time to build this trust, but trust open doors uh, to build the next piece of capital that I like to talk about is social capital. Mm-hmm. Right. So you got trust and then Trust is built by uh, having meals together, right? Doing things that build bonds. Everybody know what that is. And Mm -hmm. that's telling the truth and leaving space open for grace, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, having rituals together that those build trust. Going to church together, right? Uh, A congregation, people congregate because they attempt to worship together and try to trust each other. But we failed in that because I don't think we see that as real value. Mm. Um, The other capital um, that's not money is the social capital, those relationships. And I had realized what's so important by having you over because your gifts are an asset to us. Mm. That inviting the stranger, right, builds social capital because that's what building and cultivating economy is, is that we all get a chance to share our gifts. Our community has a, has some gifts to share to the world. 
right? Yeah. And when and when we start to live in that moment, then we had a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, when when I visited that day across the street was sort of a uh, was a art installation, but it was um, unique to me because it was located on the property of sort of a burnt out house and on the street and the windows that that had previously been open you know not not maybe boarded up or not glass in them had been covered with images from the community from an artist in the community would you describe that yeah it, that's about 5 years ago you know one of my first things i started to realize is that I was so in love with my neighbors uh, that I just saw beauty and I was so sad to see that people didn't see the same beauty. Mm. And so I have a neighbor at you. I think you briefly met him. Name is wild style. Yeah. But and he's the he, roving illustrator. And I met him and I saw him with a camera and I would tell him about all the stuff we we're talking about. And he says, you're crazy. No one does that with neighbors. And he says, but I, I entertain uh, Diamond, that's what he would say. And I start realizing that he was uncovering things. And the problem was, uh, we don't have witnesses. And he became a witness. Mm-hmm. And and that, that I was able to recognize that, um, you know, he was given deep criticism. It was, it was good, critical feedback about we need to make it visible. So I hired photographers in the neighborhood through his discretion. And um, we, I, our mandate was to find all the beautiful things that people don't see about this neighborhood and capture it. Mm-hmm. The house across the street was a was a discovery of people struggling with uh, mental illness, but figuring out ways to creatively uh, live with it abundantly. So we had a meal, mm-hmm. and we the photographer came over, took photographs and stuff like that. And so we did a series of those around the neighborhood on abandoned houses. Different different images. Different images. Some so we did a house uh school of the spirit where we found uh where people were teaching each other and we would snap photographs of it in, in houses, porches, backyards, um, city blocks, and we'd write a little bit about it and we took this one house and called it the school of the spirit. When you see the like when you look into that particular house, you see like through the front door there's a child like maybe a two-year-old in a, in a diaper running to the front door and like, and then like a grandmother sitting down with a youth at the table, like looking through the window, you can see the possibilities and you, you can see, as, as you said, it's, it's already there. Um, you're fighting to me. It's, it's so countercultural. It's so um, striking because so many of the images that we're confronted with that are not local, they're not a talk that is to our communities, like say on your Instagram feed or social media, you're bombarded with these images that tell us we need to be something different. Or if we had this, we would be more worthy. Uh, if we just tweaked this or we scrapped everything. And what you're saying is, as you just said, the, the beauty's there. We just have to find it. And, but it's a relentless sort of pursuit to me. That's like you. You're focused on that. You're focused on that. You're fo- like. Do you ever get bummed out? <laughs> like, oh, I get bummed out a lot. <laughs> I, I, I mean, in the funny things that I, I, you know, usually all the bummed out stuff is, uh, I mean, it's real stuff. 
But I realized after being bummed out, the things that matter most is like my neighbor while I style, my wife, mm. my children, uh, my friendships. Those things actually make me happy. Mm-hmm. Like, and I feel I, I feel so lucky and just blessed about I get My neighbors pay a lot of attention to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as mm-hmm. they're not, they not afraid to call me out. You know, they're real friends. Yeah. <laughs> what do they call you out on when they call you out? Well, that maybe I get too animated or too worked up. Okay. Or that, that, that I'm not taking care of myself. Mm. Um, they remind me to take vacations. Um, yeah. They actually listen more to my wife. So she, she know who's to call. Yeah. And she know which friends influence me in which ways. Yeah. So, and, and I welcome that. It's kind of mm-hmm. a cool thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what bums me out is this idea of people not trusting and what this beautiful place is offered. And not on not only the birds, the bees, the the waters and all those beautiful things we never take time to look at, but the people in it. And the beauty inside that um yeah, I just think we need more images that show that, that give us not just hope, but do what the gospel was created to do in the sense, but give us uh, affirmation that we already have an, at what we need here. Yeah, yeah. Jesus's work, um, the ministry, the way that he interacted with people um, in in communities because he, he roved around for sure. And then he, there were times when he was embedded and he was certainly drew and committed. There was mutual commitment of the, the people that he spent the most time with from him to them and from them to him. Um, although they didn't always understand sort of what this God's economy was up to and how it would, what it would require of them. But I'm wondering when you think about um, Jesus's methods and relationships. Do you see um, correlation between those and the kind of work that you teach and practice this asset-based community development? Yes, I do see some correlation. And I think I was thinking about my friend, John McKnight. Yeah. And he was really influenced by the gospel. Hmm. And he's the founder of the Institute, the Asset-Based Community Development Institute. Yeah, at DePaul. And he he, he talks, and actually, he he uses that end of the scripture at the every end of his talk, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. Hmm. And it's such a beautiful thing to lay off with. And, and it's not like we don't know that friendship can be complex. Mm-hmm. Everybody know that. But what we delight in is the opportunity to be loved. And that's mm-hmm. what friendship is. So when he when he says that, I think there is correlation. Actually, it, it the gospel is asset-based community development. <laughs> that's, that's what Jesus actually practiced. And in yeah. fact, we all know that all this healing came with those that were deemed by community or civic life as invisibles. Mm. And the healing usually mostly took place in the gospel in those places. The, I mean, even in the Old Testament, you got the exodus, exodus here, Walter Brueggemann, uh, theologian, uh, Old Testament theologian, talks about the exodus was uh, about 
from scarcity to abundance mm. and how hard that was. And it, and it said those 40 years to believe in abundance, to like, <laughs> to leave the scarcity for abundance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, send us back to Egypt, send us back to, the, yes. to yeah. And, but move forward and, and how resistant we were as a people to, to move forward and believe that, that we didn't want to go back to being enslaved. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, so, so I think what Jesus not only did that as community, but he saw that as a way of cultivating economy, right? Like if we saw the guy that was lame or um, the lady that washed Jesus's feet as somebody as valuable, we might invest in them. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Jesus knew that he had that power. I mean, yeah. and you think about those things led to the Pentecost, right? Yeah. That's what people celebrated this idea as we come up to the Pentecost. Um, but the weeks leading up to that was important. Yeah. When you say people celebrated that idea, that idea of being bringing different gifts of people together or. Yes. Bringing different. That's right. That's what that was all about. Us, not only that, that, oh, my God, we see them. Mm. Yeah, that's that's the joy. Remember when yeah. I at the beginning and said what what uh, what is it like being a roving listener? Or what yeah. what is it? Mean? And I said that when I see somebody light up, hmm. it's not that that gift wasn't there, but I just my I just became more healed. Hmm. And that's what that's what the Pentecost to me is like. Whoa, we see gifts. That's where everybody celebrated in Acts three. That's when when the eyes were open. That's when the the celebrating was happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that strikes me back to some, a conversation we had with, um, Pastor Gad Poyo, who's a friend and colleague of mine, um, in our last season. And he was, he's from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And he was talking about the Ubuntu and that, that the gifts that I am because we are, um, I am because you are that, that who we are as members of a community can't be realized until we realize who the other people are in the community and, and what, what they're offering. It is just being there in and of itself, but discovering and uncovering and celebrating their gifts. Yes. And you know, you know, a contemporary kind of, if I was going to say a contemporary poet that has probably wrapped up the, uh, the gospel is uh, Mary Oliver. Mm, yeah, you, you know her her advice on living: pay attention, be astonished, and tell somebody or tell about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and if you think about it, right, it's pay attention, right? Yeah, right. You look where abundance are. Be astonished. You can't be astonished on things that are scarce, right? Mm. And tell about it is remember our baptism. Keep telling the story about what you're about God's abundance, and it, to me, I love that as a, a as kind of the that's that's my church's guide for living. But also, I think that's what me and my neighbors at the Learning Tree just kind of figure out. Yeah, this is where we would rather spend our energy. Yeah. Um, would you tell me a little bit about? Um, some of the dinners and the meals that you guys have had um, and, and what the, who's at the table and um, what happened, what's happened because of that intentionality of telling stories and, and inviting people to, 
together within and outside of the neighborhood. So it started, this practice started uh, because the work we were doing at Broadway. I'm not employed by Broadway. I'm just a member there. Mm -hmm. Not just a member. I am a member. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love being a member there. But I saw what fabric it started to build. So I said, let me see if this would work with neighbors. And I like the host, but I actually started looking for other hosts. So when me and my neighbors got together, we started to realize that these meals were really good. So we would try them out with us. We'd do little parties. Um, Then we would slowly invite people from our church. Um, And then I would reach into my other networks. Um, Then we would start reaching out to people in the city. And we specifically targeted people who made decisions around policy or mm-hmm. had some influence and the main goal was to really say i don't want us to talk about work i want us to actually get to know each other and so yeah so we were just first they started out just as little gatherings we did a one of our first parties we started was a, a graduation celebrating the people that graduated in neighborhoods because we only focus on who didn't graduate hmm. yeah um which is important but it wasn't, that was only part of the truth. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so we failed at a few of those. But then when we started investing in other people to have parties, this was interesting. So uh, so we we launched one, a concert, uh, a little concert. It lasts two hours. The concert itself was 45 minutes. And then we had conversation and some question and answers. Um, and they were held in the living room. We called them living room concerts. We invited uh, the the CEO at the Central Indiana Community Foundation, also known as CICF. We invited a philanthropist and we invited Butler. It was about 50 people. And then, but the music was put on by people in the neighborhood. It was really good. You could watch it online. It's actually so, it's a very powerful thing. Hmm. And what we learned, a couple of things, is that the power we do have is to convene through friendship. That's our power, right? Sharing our neighbors. So that was really good. Um, and and the other thing is really owning that voice and people we can invite in, invite the stranger in, set a place for them at the table. And so like having a foundation president know he feels vulnerable in a place that he may not be popular at. Yeah. You get to tell his story. Hmm. Right. And, so anyway, so those happened. But it evolved into my friend January, who is probably one of the best. She would be our pastor. Yeah. <laughs> I love her. She's a poet. Yeah. And she grew up kind of in the same way I did. Uh, and she has such much more of a touch on this. Mm-hmm. And she can really cook. And she started doing these meals around people with mental illness that overcome and and black men and she would bring them to the table her and her friends would cook a seven course meal leave a question on the table and they would leave Hmm. and some magical things started to happen and just stuff we never could see and could own became visible and the food was so beautiful so we started asking her do more of these right say who else could you convene so the last one we did was with uh iu law school eskenazi health with the the head of health health centers, um, Don Hout, 
they had the commander of the Northwest neighborhood and Marion County Health Department. Wow. Yeah. The people that hosted it was January, right? Uh, there was a young man that, a uh, hip hop artist uh, that, you know, champions the uh, the healthcare with mental illness advocate and then uh, a, a vegan chef giving six minute vignettes and having <laughs> discussions about who the real healers are in places and how... Wow. These folks can live out they call. And it was so beautiful. It was it was it wasn't a like a debate or anything that yeah. people honestly got to learn each other. Mm-hmm. Right. To me, that that right there is what the gospel was asking us to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just um I'm picturing that scene and I'm picturing January like just dropping a question on the table. Like, so it's at maybe her house and then people come over. It's they, a living room. Okay. It's, yeah. It's it's in in a neighborhood that most people are afraid to come. But when you walk into January's house, it's filled with memories. Yeah. And she say that's why she have parties. Uh she's alone, you know, she lives alone. Yeah. And she said that she grew up telling stories from her grandmother having these parties and it was always filled with memories. Yeah. Yeah. And the question she asked at that particular meal was who were the where who were the real heroes he, healers the, healer. the real healers in the community yep and and she she not only asked it she illustrated it yeah. by showing you know yeah so, I mean, it's very layered yeah this <laughs> is amazing but but let me tell you so over like a few years what has happened with these meals this is something that i wish i was really smart to know that was going to happen but Interesting things around policy conversations start to happen here. So that particular one was hosted, was paid for by IU Law School Mm. because of its interest of bringing equity into the healthcare system, mainly in the pharmaceutical realm. Also a member of Broadway. Mm. (laughs) You get what I mean? So people start to realize that they have this power to do God's work not only on Sundays, yeah. but every day. And they are doing it. And so he, it, it because he understood that the, the system of scarcity is so prevailing that it puts people in charge of that. And he realized, well, I can make that shift. And he paid for this meal to do it. The other thing is, you know, Dawn, how the head of uh, the healthcare centers have been thinking about this in her own life in her own work. And she came over and to Broadway after reading Reverend Mike's book. Mm -hmm. And that tells these same type of stories and says, you know, we should be living like this. Yeah. You know, what's really powerful about that. The hospitals want to stay away from religion (laughs) with this particular one. Yeah. In the sense of, you know, following denomination, even though the United Methodist hospital and Presbyterian hospital system mm-hmm. were created by people by who cared about people it. of faith. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so those things start to happen. There are conversations with everyday people and people who don't think themselves as everyday. Yeah. Learning about how important it is to learn each other and figure out, let's try to cultivate the environment that we can see each other. Yeah. Yeah. 
when we were finishing our walk, I was asking you something like, well, how long, you know, what's next for you or something? And you had said, like, I'm going to be doing this work forever and my children will do this work. And that gave me, um, it, it took something off my shoulders when you said that too. And I'm wondering um, if you would reflect on that and, and maybe speaking particularly to those who might be listening who are um, also experiencing the ups and downs of being leaders in faith communities and um, experiencing the tension between the, the abundance that is and the sense of um, the ups and downs of, of life and leadership. Like, what do you, what does it mean to keep going in this work? And what would you say to those people? This work is, is pretty brutal because we don't add grace enough. Um, I would say uh, cultivate a fabric of care and love, healing. And I say you do that by not doing the things we do alone anymore. Right. I mean, kind of Jesus illustrated that, you know, and it was interesting, too, because how we have innately hold up the one figure because of our, I think because of our own humanness, right? Yeah. Realize that we, we all need to be important and there should be a pinnacle. You know, we need to be like God and this is what it means. I also think uh, we should have funerals for that, right? So how do we bury the notion yeah. that there has to be uh, a triangle or even a circle, right? Why can't it just be just this fabric that holds things together. So I think the biggest question you ask yourself when you end this work is who are the healers in your life? Mm -hmm. And then the second question that was asked to us as a group of people at Broadway and in our neighborhood is how are you going to support those healers? And I, I was thinking about that. I was in um, Birmingham and I get invited to do to host a conversation um, around foundation work. And it just so happened to be the gathering. I asked for the gathering to be in a home. Well, the home I cho chose was a few blocks away from the 16th Street Baptist Church. It was the house where two African-American doctors lived. Um, and their jobs, were they were known as the dog bite doctors. I was amazed by that story because, you know, that work that they were doing in the civil rights was hard, white and black. And the system itself was cruel. This work can be cruel. Humans can be cruel. But when you have healers in your life, dog bike doctors, right? Yeah. People that put themselves on the line so you can go back out and do the work. That is why you ask that question. And I have lots of those people around me because I have a gift, right? And, and nothing ever happens in isolation. I am here because who circles around me, because who loves me, no matter what I do, and that that I am loved. I know that. So that that is the piece that is so important. The other thing is I think 
um, why are we in a rush? We're talking about thousands of years, right? Yeah. Of of us actually doing and trying to figure this out. And if I am like so uptight, my friends always try to make sure I'm taking vacations. Yeah. Because my family needs me. Mm. And we, you know, you and I talked about our children yeah. and that's what's important. And if we live in it out, if we live in as if the gospel is true, then our children will be. And I feel really comfortable. My children, I don't know what they're going to do. Um, I'm about to become an empty nester. But what I do realize is that I am confident that God has poured into them and allowed us as parents to pour into them. And I'm following, and I noticed because my grandparents had, I'm doing the work of my grandparents and my great grandparents. And that's remembering our baptism. Yeah. Wow. Amen. Thank you so much for this conversation today, Diamon. Uh, being with you in person, your neighborhood, on our, on our headsets, this conversation, um, it gives me hope. It makes me more courageous. And it is always a delight. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's always a pleasure. I'm so excited to be um, a f- new friend of yours and your family. Oh, yes. Yeah, right back at you. Just uh, really thrilled. You can catch up with Diamond's organization, The Learning Tree LLC, by visiting their website, thelearningtrees.com. While you're at it, check out the book, Having Nothing, Possessing Everything, Finding Abundant Communities in Unexpected Places, which features Diamond's work and is written by the Reverend Mike Mather of Broadway United Methodist Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was published this spring by Erdman's Press. Special thanks to the forward-thinking leaders of the Presbyterian Church USA who first launched this movement, and to the Presbyterian Mission Agency and leaders like you. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Our producer is Martha Ames Sanders. You can visit our website, newchurchnewway.org, and see stories and photos of the humans involved in this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time.